0: You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. We're talking about data this week, listeners. Our guest this week is the founder of Entertainment Intelligence, a UK-based data service provider that helps indie artists, indie labels, and distributors manage data to gain valuable insight on playlist performance, stream sources, and listener behavior. Clients include industry staples such as Concord, Domino, and Subpop. You can find out more about his work by visiting www.entertainment-intelligence.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Delaney is on the Break the Business podcast. Hi, Greg.
1: Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's to meet
0: you. uh, Likewise, man. This is so, so cool. I love getting into data, and your company certainly loves to get into it on its end. Can you tell the listeners a bit about what Entertainment Intelligence does?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I suppose, in a nutshell, we manage data on behalf of uh, distributed labels, um, predominantly. Uh, The people who have the relationship with the DSPs on behalf of artists or labels. So it might be a big independent distributor. Secretly Canadians, one that probably everyone in the States would know. uh, Zelon in Australia, Zebolution in Germany. Um, And what we do is we actually gather the granular data and manage it on their behalf and then generate dashboards and reports and things that help them understand uh, where they sit and how they're performing in the industry. Uh, we don't scrape any data. It's all the deep granular data directly through the contract. So it's, that's uh, where we sit in the in the marketplace.
0: It is a pretty deep dive that you guys do. Uh, a lot of the tools that you offer, you say, were tools that were previously only available to the very, very biggest labels. So how is your company able to provide those same tools to a larger segment of artists?
1: I suppose there's a economy of scale really ryan it's that whole idea that if a label was going to go out there and be a tech company and you know we must all admit that labels and distributors really in the modern music world are tech companies you know love it or hate it that's the world we're in but to run those services is expensive you know we do about 160 to 170 million lines of data a day um we've got nigh on 75 billion rows of granular data that's right down to individual listener level uh, on our data warehouse and we can, we can query it and we can dig into it whenever we want. But that, you know, it's costly. We have a team of people that just keep on top of that data. They fix problems. They look out for issues with the DSPs. We talk to the engineers. So we meet regularly on, on the phone and, and, and in person with people like Spotify's API team, for instance, had a chat with them last week. To talk about what's coming up, uh, issues that might be there, identifiers that are changing. So our job is to keep on top of that. If every label out there was doing that, then they'd need a pretty big old team to do it. Whereas the major labels, obviously, they're big companies. They have a tech department, so it's a different, a different thing for them.
0: So right, you're, you're sort of the outsourced tech department for a lot of these. Uh, indie labels and indie distributors that don't have the same kind of resources to bring that in-house. I just sort of imagine if I were to walk into your office, I would just see a bunch of computers and it would look like the (laughs) opening scene of The Matrix where it's just like a bunch of zeros and ones raining from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen and people just furiously Was Was that...
1: I dream in binary,
0: so
1: <laughs> ones and zeros.
0: Ones and zeros. All right. Well, I want to talk about one of the places where those ones and zeros really matter to indie artists, and that's playlists. I I would say among the emails I get the most from artists, it's talk to, the, talk to our, your guests more about playlists and how to get on playlists. I want to learn everything there is to know about playlists. That's what I hear from artists. And so we got something of a playlist expert here. Our guest has written a lot in the past about playlists. And he devotes a lot of his time on the data side of this to correcting a lot of misconceptions that artists tend to have about playlists. For example, Greg, you've written in the past about how a playlist's follower count can often be a misleading statistic in terms of how valuable a playlist can be for an artist to get on. That seems sort of counterintuitive. Why is that? So
1: I suppose the easiest way to to look at it is... um If a playlist is for Christmas or Valentine's or the NFL or Super Bowl, the World Cup, whatever it happens to be, it will get a big list of followers, come on board when it first happens, and then people don't unfollow a playlist. Very few people will unfollow a playlist. So they may have listened to it avidly during the World Cup and then never go back again. So it may have millions of followers, but the active listeners is very, very low. So often you'll look and think, oh, you know, this playlist looks great. It's got 2 million followers. No one's looking at it. So you need to know how active is that playlist? How many streams would I genuinely generate in a day if I made it on there? And also, what are my chances of getting on there? So we we often use examples where a playlist that is very genre specific or has a niche audience um, will be looking for new talent in that space. And then they'll put people in, and they'll curate it very carefully. And once they've taken time to make a good playlist, they'll let it run. So the lifespan of a track on there could be hundreds of days. So we've used quite a few examples where, uh, say, Nordic Folk is one of the ones we use a lot. It's a very tightly curated playlist. And you'll be on there for about 280 to 320 days, and you'll get about five to 800 streams a day. So when you times those together, you actually get a fairly good return. Whereas one of the big uh, workout playlists, it will get about 10,000 streams a day. So big numbers, but the churn rate has to be high. It's, it's um, you know, it's a, a pop mostly. And because it's a workout, people listen to it a lot. So it can't have the same content on there all the time. So the churn rate will be higher and you'll get about 7 to 14 days on there. So over time, you actually get the same sort of return on, on one of the smaller playlists, Um, but also you're exposed to an audience for a longer space of time. You can use it as ammo to go and tell other playlists, hey, get me on your playlist. I'm on all these ones. Um, But it's pretty hard if you're on and off really quick. By the time you've run down the road and told someone, you're already off it. So that's probably one of the key examples of of why the follower count's a bit misleading.
0: Well, that's really interesting. I'd love to take that concept even a little bit further. So if I'm an artist and I'm trying to figure out what playlists are right for me in terms of what's going to you know, give me the most bang for my buck, so to speak— mm. um, but I don't have, say, the resources of entertainment intelligence behind me to sort of go into the data, what are some of the attributes I should look at in a playlist that might give me a clue that this might be a good spot for me? I know you talked about, you know, sort of niche playlists or genre-specific playlists. Is that where an artist should kind of devote some of their focus?
1: Yeah, and um, also now I know Spotify for Artists, for instance, Apple for Artists, Deezer's now bringing out their platform, um, they do give artists those tools where they can start looking at you know more real-time listener counts. So uh, I think Spotify's new one came out this week where they're saying you know who's listening right now. Um, it takes a bit of work, and you know artists, well, you know they're busy being creative. But if they can spend some time just looking and thinking, okay, the listener count on here is good uh, and it's consistent each day. There's generally a good number of listeners. Right, that one's going to actually be worth knowing, um, and there are sort of various other, you know, lists that you can start building yourself or looking at, um, you know, who's curating or following those playlists. So it might be that, um, you know, there might be a tastemaker that you that you really respect. Um, we tend to tag playlists now, so we're actually now starting to put our own tagging into playlists to say, um, you know, this one is. Uh, this particular genre, or this tribe, or this vibe. Um, so, giving you ability to search for more than just you know, just genre or just other similar artists. But it could be that it's workout, that it's study, that it's chill, um, or that it's you sort of, uh, know, gothic post punk or something like that. Who knows? Um, so you need to you need to be clever about how you look for these things, and also understand ignore the vanity metrics and look at what the the real listener and consumer data is if you can get your hands on it. um, That's sometimes the the trick.
0: That's great. And it's awesome that, you know, finally resources like Apple Music and Spotify are creating more tools for artists to help them in that search. I want to talk more about data generally now, you know, in in the work that you and your team does, where you're looking at those zeros and ones all day, I imagine Mm -hmm. that you gain a lot of really interesting insights just generally about how people are consuming music lately. And so I'm wondering if you have any insights out there that you could share about music consumption that our indie artist listeners might find particularly interesting.
1: Uh, so we've definitely seen a rise in the smart speakers. So we when we get our data, we get the source of stream and the device. So we know how many people are coming from you know, playlists or artist pages. We also know what device they're on. So smart speakers and also in car, surprisingly, is now starting to grow as well. I'm not say surprisingly, over the years it's going to grow. You know, more more car radios are going to be plugged in and and actually allow people to request uh, music. So definitely the the voice operated side of things is starting to improve and get interesting. Uh, the the emerging markets as well. So you've got a lot of artists who are starting to collaborate with, say, African artists. And then there's that crossover where um, not just the artists, but also the genres, you know, audience aren't just listening to a genre now. They're listening to moods. Playlists are very mood-based. So, you know, a lot of young kids wouldn't even know they're listening to, to jazz, for instance, hence the rise of Ezra Collective and Kamasi Washington and, you know, Seed Ensemble and all these great sort of, uh, sort of modern jazz bands you know 10 years ago wouldn't have got a look in really they would have been played on a jazz radio station and that would have been where they had to sit very very rare to cross over now they're getting put onto playlists and they're getting included in a lot of things so you know i think there's a lot of really talented indie artists who are doing something very different and by collaborating and you know, it's a bit like the whole concept of following. You follow someone, they follow you back. Well, if you put someone on your playlist, you start building your own, then you can start hoping that people will put you on theirs. So it's, it's you know, in the way social metric works, you know, there is a quid pro quo or a give and take on playlists as well. So, you know, that's really worth doing. Definitely recommend other people you like and they'll they'll push their audience to you
0: as well. So those insights definitely speak to the value of collaboration. Absolutely. You can find out more about Mm -hmm. our guests' work by visiting www.entertainment-intelligence.com. Greg, one last question before we let you go. And this has been fun diving into those ones and zeros together with you. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? One thing I
1: always say is, is just get everything connected. You know, I'm I'm staggered at how, I, I used to run CrowdSurge, the ticketing in uh, the fan club ticketing service. So I was co-founder of CrowdSurge, and in the live space, you know, I always said to managers and people, why don't you ask in your um, in your rider that you get five show posters? You know, it costs nothing for the promoter to print them off while they're doing it. So just get five show posters. You know, Arctic Monkeys playing in a pub in Sheffield 10, 15 years ago is you know very very valuable to a fan now. Um, So in the digital way, it should be the same. You know, if you're putting something up on Instagram, make sure you can link back to YouTube or to Facebook, but then link back to your streaming. So go go from the most common audience to something that generates income. You know, YouTube doesn't generate a lot of income, but there's a huge audience there. So when they're watching your video, make sure that you're prompting them to buy tickets, to get T-shirts and to stream or save you on a DSP that does pay well. You know, so add it to your Spotify, add it to your Deezer, or whatever. So get them all linked, and it's not hard to do. You know, There are plenty of tools out there. You can use LinkFire. You can do it yourself manually, um, but just link everything together because your audience drifts around things, and you just need to keep corralling them to where it's going to make you mo- most money. So to, to do that, that's definitely worth doing.
0: Greg Delaney, ladies and gentlemen, the founder of Entertainment Intelligence. Greg, thank you for making us just a little bit smarter about data this week.
1: No problem, Ryan. Absolute pleasure.
0: And thank you all for listening to the Break the Business podcast.